Good morning, everybody. There you go. Uh, my name's Pastor Scott, and I'm going to continue a series that I started, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago, If Then. And today it's If Pastor Matt Has COVID, Then Pastor Scott Gets to Teach. So that's not exactly, but that's why I'm here this morning. If you've never heard uh, our teaching pastor, Pastor Matt, teach, I would encourage you to come again or tune in again. He does a great job. You could be praying for him. Um, I was going to start, I was sharing with the band that what we are here is Formia Club, everybody in this room, nobody has a boat, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, right? It's a beautiful day, you'd be on your boat. So I'm glad that you guys are here, I'm glad that you guys are watching at home. Maybe you're watching from your boat, I don't know. Um, the actual title, it is If Then, if we identify as a follower of Jesus, then what do we do with our stuff? What do we do with our stuff? And I actually, because uh, it's, it's Pastor Sermon 101, you're supposed to have a bunch of funny sayings to start out with. I had a bunch of them. I'm only going to read a couple of them just so we don't go along. Uh, one was from Will Rogers. It says, too many people spend money to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. I can relate to that. And Artemis Ward said, when a fellow says it ain't the money, but the principle of the thing, it's the money. All right? That's true. Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for these people here and, and online. I pray that you'll be with us as we consider your generosity and our generosity and how we need to, to figure all that out. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're going to start out talking about spiritual disciplines. And I think if we came up with that term, if theologians came up with that term in the last 10 years, they probably wouldn't have called it spiritual disciplines because that doesn't sound like very much fun, right? Discipline isn't a, isn't a fun thing. But I relate it to spiritual disciplines. I relate it to like if you wanted to be a competitive swimmer, there would be certain disciplines you would employ to do that, right? You would probably eat really well and you would get enough sleep and you'd be in the weight room and you'd be swimming laps all the time, if that was your goal. And so if we're followers of Jesus and we want to know more about that, how to be a follower of Jesus, how, you know, how God, what, what God's expectations are for us and who he is, we would probably follow these spiritual disciplines, right? And there are different lists of them. I went with the main four, that's what we'll go over, but you can probably come up with another ten if you wanted to. But the first spiritual discipline is Bible reading slash Bible memorization, right? That makes sense. If we, if we worship God, we want to know more about him, right? The Bible tells us who he is and his plan for us and, and for creation. Very interesting reading, right, if that's who we are. So you want to make sure we do that. Prayer would be another one. We have the great blessing of worshiping a God who wants us to dialogue with him crazy, right? The, the God of the universe wants to hear from you and I. That is really important discipline. The next one is fellowship and being with other believers like this. This is fellowship, um, learning from each other, uh, worshiping God together. That one of the purposes of church is purely for fellowship. And the last one is giving, sharing what God has given us. By the way, I didn't mention to be on the app. If you, if you don't know already, we have an app. These notes are in the app. So you don't have to pay attention to what I'm saying. You can go back later when you're on the boat, your friend's boat, I guess. But these four things, Bible, reading, prayer, fellowship, and giving. If you're here today, if you're watching online, you probably have two or three of these under control a little bit, or at least you, you know, you're dealing with it in some way. And if I'm totally honest, giving, the topic of giving, 
is the third rail of preaching. You know how like there's a political third rail, something you just do not go to? Giving is one of those things. Uh, we actually had a friend of mine a couple years ago from, from Kauai came here and he, we invited him to preach and he goes, yeah, awesome, what do you want me to preach on? We said, you preach on whatever you want. He said, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna preach on giving because pastors hate preaching on giving. Why? Why do we hate preaching on giving? I think part of it is if we are challenged to rethink our possessions, we start to bristle a little bit, right? I don't want to mess with that area right there. And of the spiritual disciplines, giving by its nature causes us to examine our level of trusting God in a way that the other spiritual disciplines probably don't. Okay? Anybody feeling uncomfortable right now just a little bit? It's all right. It's good. Wait a minute. I'm going to take some energy out of the room right now to get you in your seats. You guys have heard of tithing, right? Tithing in the Old Testament, giving 10% to the temple. Christians are not bound by tithing. Aren't you glad you came now? You didn't go on the boat? You are not bound by tithing. Tithing specifically was to Israel for that time and that place. All the tithes had to be something that you could eat, right? And they all came from Israel. Okay, so we don't live in Israel, and I don't raise cattle. There's probably some farmers here. You're still, you are still not bound by tithe. We're going to return to this in a little bit, but for right now, it's good news. Here's a fun fact. I'm going to look behind, you can let you see behind the curtain a little bit. Uh, virtually every time I found somebody leave the church over something either doctrine or a theolo theological point or the fact that we don't have pews or we do have pews and all those kind of things over my life, virtually every time that's happened, there's a certain order that it goes in when they leave, when somebody leaves the church. The first one is they stop giving. And then some weeks or months after that, they stop attending. And then some weeks or months after that, if they have kids in, like, the youth program, they stop letting their kids come. I don't have any conclusion about that, but it's very interesting, and I think it tells us something about ourselves, maybe, about how we prioritize stuff. Like, why would money be first? I don't know. We'll think about that. Another thing is, when you start uh, studying about what the Bible says about money, invariably somebody will say, you know that Jesus spoke more about money than any one single topic in the Bible. You guys heard that before? I heard that a lot. Is that true? Yes and no. Okay? Jesus does talk about money in 11, 11 of the 39 uh, lessons that he gives. 11 of the 39 parables, he talks about money, but many of those, he's not really talking about money. Like in Matthew 20, Jesus talks about payment for the vineyard workers, right? And he talks about money. He's, he's not talking about payroll principles in that, right? He's using that to talk about grace, about how we don't, we, don't, we don't earn grace, right? So, Jesus does not talk about money more than any other topic. However, Jesus talks a bunch about money. A lot. Why? Why on earth does Jesus talk a lot about money? Do you think he's fascinated with money? Do you think he was motivated by money? I don't think so, because if we look at his life on earth, he didn't have any. Didn't even have a house. He's just wandering around dependent upon other people. So why does he have this much energy behind money? And let me make you rest assured before I go any further, Jesus does not use our possessions as a price tag for our salvation. 
I don't want anybody to leave here thinking that's what I'm saying. Jesus does not use our possessions as a price tag for our salvation. That's not how grace works. There isn't something that we, it's not something we can buy or it's not something we can earn. It's a gift, right? So everybody should relax about that. It's not, Scott's not saying that. I don't want to see this on Facebook this afternoon. Scott said this. I did not say that. I think that Jesus' focus on money is much more subtle. And I think I can make the point that he's seeing money as a post-salvation indicator for our spiritual life. Okay? And I believe that Jesus may be encouraging us to use our money and possessions as a barometer for our own spiritual health. Okay? And by the way, Jesus doesn't need a barometer. He knows my heart. He knows your heart better than we do. So I believe that these teachings, these verses that we're going to go over, is to help us to use our possessions as just a barometer, just kind of saying, okay, I wonder how I'm doing. I don't know. Let's see. You guys remember Zacchaeus? Pastor Matt talked on Zacchaeus a couple months ago. Just to kind of bring us up to speed, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and, uh, you know, the Jews were conquered by Rome, and the Romans were brilliant. You know, they were great architects, all these things. They had this brilliant system. They wanted to tax the Jews, right, to, to pay for, you know, running stuff, right, logistics, all that kind of stuff. They came up with this brilliant system. What we're going to do is we're going to have Jews act as the tax collectors. Smart. And they told the tax collectors, look, we want X from this area, and anything you collect over X, you get to keep. Well, that sounds like a really good system that would probably be really, really susceptible to corruption. And that's what happened. The Jewish tax collectors were renownedly hated, and we, everything that you read within the Bible and without is because they over-collected, right? And Zacchaeus, since he was the head tax collector for that area, we assumed that, and he was wealthy, we assumed he was corrupt, right? How do you get wealthy and you're the head of this corrupt organization? He was corrupt. So the story goes that Zacchaeus hears about Jesus, right? And he wants to go see him. He hears that Jesus is coming into town. You can imagine a tax collector is always talking to people all the time, right? In the marketplace or whatever. And he's thinking, oh, I'm hearing a lot about this Jesus. I want to see. He was vertically challenged. So he goes up into a tree. He's watching for Jesus when he comes in. Jesus walks by, looks up there and says, Zacchaeus, I'm in at your house today. His followers are blown away. I'm sure they said, no, 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 not Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. You don't want to go there. Go any place. Go, go to the, the farrier. Go, go to the basket maker. Anybody, don't go to Zacchaeus. He's a sinner. Nope, we're going. So he goes, right? He goes, eats in his house. And this is where we start in Luke 19, verse 8. It says, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give back to them today four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. Jesus is not saying, oh, cool, Zacchaeus has bought salvation. That's not what he's saying. Why does he mention it? If you look at these tense that he uses, it says, I will give half my wealth to the poor, and I will give back four times as much. Zacchaeus is converted right then. For, for Jesus to say salvation has come to this home, he is recognizing that corrupt and wealthy Zacchaeus has been changed, and the proof of that change is how he's treating his money differently than he did an hour before. 
Jesus sees this and recognizes his action for proof of his conversion. Now let's contrast this to the rich young ruler. You guys probably know the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus is walking with his disciples. Uh, this rich young ruler comes up to him. I'm sure he was handsome as well, right? Wealthy people are always handsome. It seems it's hard any ugly, wealthy people. Um, so he, he walks up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, All you have to do is keep the commandments. And I can just feel the rich one goes, Whew, good, I've been doing that since day one. I've been keeping the commandments, no problem. And then I see Jesus walking away. It doesn't say this, but I see him walking away. And then he pulls the Columbo. And if any of you are in here that don't know, ask your grandmother. He goes back and he goes, uh, One more thing. Right? Has a wrinkled thing. One more thing. Uh, give away all your money to the poor, and then you can follow me. Instantly, the rich young ruler is deflated because he walks away depressed. Jesus then tells the disciples it is easier for a rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Right? That's pretty big. You've seen camels, right? They're big, needles are small. This seems like a very clear illustration to me because the disciples react and says, what? Then who can go to heaven? If a rich man can't go to heaven, who can go to heaven? They understand it's impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Jesus says, well, what's impossible for man is possible for God. The interesting thing about this story is a number of times in my lifetime, I've had people come up to me and say, no, 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 no. It's not an eye of a sewing needle. There was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle gate. Now, that would be interesting, except it's not true. At Jesus' time, there was no gate. We have no record of any gate called the eye of the needle gate. But why do we cling to that? Why do these Christians come to me and say, no, no, it just means that, you know, it's a shorter gate, and so you'd have to have the camels take off all their gear, and then they would kind of shimmy through there, right, and get through the gate. So it's not impossible. It's just harder. That's not what he's saying. Because otherwise, the disciples said, oh, yeah, well, if you get enough guys, you push on the you know, the south end of an earthbound camel, it's going in there, right? But, but that's not what he's saying. They said, oh no, nobody can get into heaven then. Jesus is saying, look, if, if, if you have wealth, we need to guard that your heart really, really hard, right? There's a danger to having wealth. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and when we try to dilute these disturbing warnings that Jesus offers us throughout Scripture— we're in danger. He doesn't put it in there just to fill pages. We must not put riches before God, and Jesus knows we're going to be tempted to do just that. That exact same thing. Now, the good news is, apparently people have been struggling with this for at least 2,000 years, right? So we are not alone. Jesus figured this out. Jesus knew that the rich young ruler's God was money. Luke 16, 13 talks about this. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. You know what it doesn't say there? It doesn't say it's going to be hard for you to serve God if you're enslaved to money. It doesn't say it's going to be a little bit tricky to serve God if, if you're enslaved to money. It says, cannot. It cannot be done. 
as I was reading this week, a really good theologian I was reading, he, he was saying, I don't know if we should call riches blessings. They may even be burdens because we have to be really, really careful. Jesus also knows that if he is not Lord of our possessions, then he will not be Lord of our life. Jesus knows our heart just as well as he knew Zacchaeus' heart and the rich young ruler's heart. That's why this stuff is in the Bible. The New Testament is full of teachings that speak to the fact that how we deal with our possessions is directly tied to our spiritual transformation. Mark 12, verse 41, says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a widow came in and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those contributing to the offering box, for they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she's had, all she had to live on. I have read this story literally for decades, right? I'm sure most of you, it's very common to you. What I didn't realize until this week, what jumped out at me, is Jesus goes into the temple expressly to sit next to the offering box and watch people. Why would he do that? I think he's, you know, illustrating to his disciples, this is a barometer. This is a barometer for where we're at. Now, if he did that then, I assume that he's watching me over the same issue. And I sh I'm sure he's watching you guys as well. Now, as, I, as I, sh I shared the good news at the beginning, we are no longer governed by the Old Testament tithe. That's the good news. Whew, what a relief. The bad news is the standards went up. Just like everything else, right? Everything else Jesus talks about. Remember he talked about, it is written that you shall not murder. I'm saying if you get angry with somebody, that's, you've committed murder. Yikes, that, that's quite a gap, right? It is written that you shall not commit adultery. I'm saying if you look at somebody who's not your spouse with less in your heart, you've committed adultery. Yikes, the standard's higher. Naturally, the standard's gonna be higher for our money. It just makes sense. As followers of Jesus, we are to see everything we have as being on loan from God. I honestly wonder why we use the term giving. Because I was thinking today, if I borrow my neighbor's lawnmower, I don't go, hey, I'm gonna give you a lawnmower when I'm done with it. No, I say I'm gonna return your lawnmower, right? We're, everything we have is from God, so we're returning some of it back to him for his work. So, you Christians out there, we're not called to give just 10% to charity, we're called to give all that is needed to charity. And if we're honest and we look historically, everybody in this room, everybody watching online is in the top 1% richest people of all time. Okay? Anyone uncomfortable yet? That should have covered everybody by now, right? Everybody's uncomfortable? I would be. I'm thinking, this guy is crazy. I mean, I go to church, let him, you know, keep his hands out of my pockets. That's what we're thinking. No, no, no. Redemption Church, you are special. 
I'm not kidding, you are special. A few years ago, we hired uh, consultants to come in and, and kind of uh, gauge where we're at and where we should be going in ministry and you know, what things we should focus on. And a couple things, this guy goes and does this at churches all over the country, a couple things blew him away. Blew him away. One of the things is how much you guys volunteer. Off the charts. He, he questioned my, my tracking ability on it, right? He goes, Are you, is this number right? I said, this number's right. 80, over 80% of you guys serve. Now, that may not sound amazing, but nationally, the average is 20%. So you guys rock. You guys rock. The other thing is, you guys heard a thing called COVID? Probably, you know, it's been in the papers. It's been out there for a little. Uh, you know, we went for like over a year. We, we couldn't meet in person, right? It was just online. And uh, churches all over the country were closing. Churches all over the country were laying off staff. None of those ha things happen at Redemption Church because you guys are faithful givers. That is fantastic. Fantastic. But as I was fantasizing this week, because I know that a lot of us give to organizations other than Redemption Church, but I was fantasizing, what if all the people that call Redemption Church home, and as near as I can tell, that's approaching 500 people, 500 adults. If all the people online, in person, gave 5% of their income, which is a big break over the Old Testament, right? Only 5% of their income, I, I don't even know what we would do ministry-wise. Like, I just think, holy cow, that would be unbelievable. It would be, it, it would be the things legends are, are written about, right? It would be crazy things that God would lay on our hearts for that, that would be amazing. So all this talk about money, should we be concerned or are we good? Well, for me, since Jesus is concerned with this area of our lives, then I guess we need to be as well. Even if I don't like it, even if it makes me uncomfortable. I've also heard lots of people say to me, see, there's, there may be somebody right now, see, this is why I don't go to church. They're always talking about money. It's always about the money. Now, I don't know if that's true for you guys. I've been in church my whole life. I, I have not heard very many sermons on money because pastors don't like to talk about it. But maybe the reason why we think that way, we think, why are they always talking about money? Maybe the reason why they think that way is because sermons about love and faith and salvation don't get our blood pressure up. Right? And why might that be? Well, maybe love and, and faith and salvation are not our God's. Maybe the reason why I might feel energy when somebody starts talking about how much I give or don't give is because maybe that's a competition to God. Maybe that's why I get energy. Imagine what our world would look like if we adhered to the teachings of Jesus about possessions. If we, if we truly took those serious, what would happen? You guys probably know that 50% of divorces or 50% of marriages end in divorce, right? Everybody knows that. Did you know that of those divorces, over 80% attribute finances as the major dispute within their marriage? Okay? There's a lot of energy behind money within the church and without the church. We should not emulate our society that way. Romans 12.2 says, don't copy the behavior that customs of this world, but let God transform you 
into a new person by changing the way you think. Money is a tool that is used by Satan pretty powerfully, right? We're always competing for that, right? There's always, we're always latching on. That's where our security is. If only I had this. If only my house was, looked like this. If only my, my car was this. If only my boat was like this. If only my kids went to this school. All these different things are competing for our heart if we're not careful, right? They aren't bad. None of those things are bad unless they're competing for our heart. There is nothing wrong inherently with money. There is something desperately wrong with devotion to money. 1 Timothy 6.9 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people, craving money, have wandered from the truth, from the true faith, and pierced themselves with many sorrows. This is probably the most misquoted or, or insufficiently quoted verse right now. Everybody says money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money. Money is benign. Money can be used for good or bad. The love of money is what we have to watch. The more we allow the Bible's teachings in these unsettling passages to speak to us, the closer we come to Jesus and the more we become like Jesus. So I would love for each of us today or this week or something to examine. Is, there, is, this, is this something I need to deal with, God? Am I, am I cool with it? Are you cool with it, Jesus? If, you, you know, if you're watching me, how I'm using my money, are you, are you giving me a thumbs up? Are you, are you praising me like the widow? Or are you not impressed? If we identify as a follower of Jesus, then all we have is his. If you're here this morning and you have not committed yourself to following Jesus, or if you're online, I am so glad that you sat through this thing. That's amazing. And you may be asking yourself, why would I trade everything to follow Jesus? Everything that I've... I strive for, everything that I've been rewarded with, everything I've amassed, everything that brings me joy, everything that brings me happiness, everything that brings me accolades. Why would I give that up to follow Jesus? I was thinking about that while I was thinking about you, who, who are my people that aren't following Jesus yet. And I, and I serve as a chaplain for some organizations, and I deal with death a lot, and I deal with suicide a lot. And so I study suicide to kind of help families dealing with suicide. And I came across a very interesting fact. Wealth is directly tied to how likely you are to kill yourself. The more money you make, the more likely it is that you will have suicidal ideation. Now, why on earth would that be? Money makes us happy, right? Money gives us things. Money makes us comfortable. Money is what we work for. I believe... You non-believers, I believe that you were created to worship God, just like me. And because you're not doing that yet, there's something that you feel that is lacking. And society and the devil is telling you all the time that it's money and it's stuff. What happens is that people are wealthy and they amass this stuff. They're still unhappy. And then what? Then what do you do? You've reached it. You've reached your goals. You've exceeded your goals. 
You're trying to fill that, that God-shaped hole with money, and it does not work. C.S. Lewis said, he who has God in everything has no more than he who has God alone. I believe that. Money will not make us happy. Money will not give us joy. Jesus does that. I challenge you to start talking to him this week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for you loving us so much that you laid out these verses to help us to be wary about money and our possessions. I pray for each one of us listening today that we would uh, evaluate, make sure that we're, we're using the things that have been given us in ways that bring you glory. For those of us that are challenged in such a way that we feel that it's a competition to who you are and, and who's in control of our lives, I pray that we would have the courage to surrender that to you today. And Father, I lift those up to you right now that have heard these words, and maybe this just sounds insane to them. Maybe it just seems like, what? How, how can you ask me to do this? Just like that rich young ruler. I pray that it, you, they would remember that that rich young ruler turned away, still overwhelmed with his wealth, depressed. Because what he was searching for, he would not surrender to get. I lift up each and every soul that heard this today. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.